Well, we come now to the reading of God's Word, our, our scripture text for our sermon today. So I'd invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. As Pastor Moody is going to start the first of a two-week series. Again, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Church family, hear God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our Lord God, as we come down to your word, we pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, give us clarity, give us a sense of your presence. Would you, by your spirit, fire us to believe and commit to the truths that your word is teaching us all this morning, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Ben uh, mentioned, I'm beginning a new two-week series on relationships this morning, and uh, we're looking this morning at the passage we just had read out, Genesis chapter 2, and verses 18 to 25, on the theme of family, and then next week uh, we are going to be looking at another passage uh, later in the Old Testament on the theme of friendship. So this is a two-week series on relationships, and we begin uh, this morning looking at this classic passage in the Bible about family. For us to have healthy families, our family life, whether we are married or single, and it's important to put uh, those, both those options out there, because often in church life, people who are single feel a little marginalized because churches tend to talk a lot about family. So whether you're married or single this morning, for us to have healthy family life, spiritually healthy family life, our families need to be shaped by the story of God's original purpose for family. 
Stories shape uh, family life. I'm sure you've all got stories in your family, and uh, I know we have in ours. You think of the story about grandmother, or the story about uh, what your father did, or your mother did, or that sort of thing. We have various archetypal stories like that in our families. My grandmother was uh, famous for when she was over 90 years old, still driving at over 90 miles an hour. And that indeed has shaped um, our lives, as anyone who's driven with me will be able to testify. When you have young children, you are often trying to impress upon them the importance of various safety factors that are not intuitive to a young child. Uh, uh, Look either way before you cross the street. Uh, Wear your bike helmet when you are riding around the neighborhood. And if you're in that stage of life with a young family, what I sometimes jokingly call the subsistence farming stage of life, and you're constantly asleep when you don't want to be asleep and awake when you don't want to be awake, and you're trying to impress upon your children various safety protocols and other fundamentals of life, you perhaps tell them stories. We did that with our children about wearing a bike helmet and the importance of it. And one of, one of their parents, uh, before bike helmets were standard, uh, fell off their bike and split open their head. And we, we told that story. And even later, our children remember and say, oh, that's important that you wear your bike helmet. And the, the story is there and it shapes how you behave. Somewhat similarly, in the Bible, there is a story. It's a story about family. And that story, if we are to have healthy family lives, needs to shape how we think of family. And so uh, uh, that's going to be the the theme and the ambition this morning, to let the story of the Bible shape our attitude to family life. Now you say, well, why should we think about families? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, statistics still show, recent statistics show, that the majority of Americans would still say that their fundamental identity, what they think about who they are, is shaped by their family life. Over 50% of millennials would say that, over 60% of Gen Xers and higher for boomers. That family life shapes our sense of who we are, and therefore, of course, it is important that we think through what would be a spiritually healthy, a soul health attitude to family. By the same token, statistics also show that while we value family, and families often have their own set of values for family life, it is relatively rare for an American family to actually have a specific mission statement. To write down a mission statement for your family may be something that someone has done, and I'm not saying it's necessary to physically write it down, but it is interesting, to me at least, that while we value family, we don't seem to have an idea of a purpose beyond it being important. But why? And for what end? 
And into that vacuum, of course, has come all sorts of cultural stories about family that then inadvertently and sometimes consciously shape our attitude to family life in more or less healthy ways. And so it's significant for us to think through what is the right story, God's original story for the purpose of family. And let's look at that together this morning from this famous passage in Genesis chapter 2. To begin with, though, to understand it, we've got to set the context. We just had read out a few verses of these founding chapters, the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. But it's, a sto- it's, a, it's, it's, it's in a context of a larger story. And the book of Genesis is one of five founding texts for the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch, the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And those founding texts, it is traditionally thought, were edited together by Moses to give shape to God's people Israel, for them to understand where they had come from as they were getting ready to enter the promised land. And indeed, in the book of Genesis, scholars would say you can, you can discern the different sources, the different texts that Moses put together by the repeated refrain in the book of Genesis, which is, these are the generations of. And it's quite possible that actually that goes all the way back to the writing on, on clay tablets in cuneiform that Moses perhaps put together as he shaped the story of these first five books. And the book of Genesis itself, the first of those five, has its own sub-story underneath that big story. And it is summarized most effectively by uh, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. If you have a Bible open, you might like to turn there. The end of Genesis, it says this, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many lives. That is a summary statement for what Genesis is saying. We've rebelled against God, but God has a plan for good, to bless the world, to save many lives. And as Joseph speaks that to his brothers, he's summarizing, and the author of Genesis is intending to tell us, he's summarizing the theme of Genesis, which is why in the first 11 chapters we are told about this rebellion of, of humanity against the goodness of God, that God has a plan to bless humanity nonetheless for the saving of many lives. And that plan summer, is centered upon a family. Genesis chapter 12. Again, if you have a Bible, you'd like, like to turn there. In verse 3, God speaking to Abraham, or as he was called later, Abraham. He says, I will bless, chapter 12, verse 3, those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, All the families, all the nations, or most literally, all the clans, all the different groups in the world, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has a plan to bless all nations 
through a family. And his seed, his offspring. And as Paul will tell us in the book of Galatians in the New Testament, that seed of Abraham is Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. So this story of family is much bigger than simply mum and dad and uncles and aunts and my little group that looks after each other. God has a purpose for family, the family of Abraham and his seed that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And through him and faith in him alone, God's blessing is for all the families of the earth. Now hold that thought in your mind as we think through the story, God's original story of family to let it shape our families. Come back then to Genesis chapter 2. And here is the archetypal family. And of course, those of us who are Bible students will know that it occurs before Genesis chapter 3, which is when the fall enters and the world goes wrong and it's broken. But this archetypal shape of family in Genesis chapter 2 is indeed meant to shape our attitude to family, as uh, uh, the author of Genesis puts it in uh, verse 24 of chapter 2, therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He's now speaking to those who read it on the other side of the fall. It's meant to shape our attitude to family, this original template, shape, story of what family is. Well, what is that original story, template, shape? What it begins with what in many ways is the most astonishing thing, or at least one of the most astonishing things the Bible ever says. In verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good. That's an astonishing shock. There we are in paradise, in a garden, in Eden, And God in Genesis chapter 1 has over and over again said of his creation, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And yet here, in the garden, in Eden, there's something that is not good. What is that? It's not good that the man should be alone. In the very image of God, as Genesis chapter 1 puts it, that man is made in his image, male and female, both in the image of God. Here, as that statement is filled out, we're told it's not good that the man should be alone. That relationships are core to who we are meant to be. It's not good to be alone. 
And so God says, I'll make a helper fit for him. That is a strong help mate fit that is complementary, connects the other half. As we'll see, that's a statement with a reflection in Genesis chapter 2. A helper fit for him. The significance of that is emphasized again at the end of verse 20. A helper fit for him. It's not good for man to be alone. But then we find in verse 19 it's, uh, and 20, it's still not good. Uh, God brings before uh, the man all these different beasts and he names them. Often when people teach on this passage, they use this This part of the story is a kind of joke that the man looks at the different animals and can't find a companion for him. And it's sort of, it's preached as a sort of humorous humorous interlude. And, And perhaps at some level that's okay. But the point, of course, is that the man, as he looks at creation, and indeed his authority over creation, naming the different animals, cannot find companionship, cannot find a solution to his aloneness in his work. And so often man has tried to find a solution to a lack of companionship in empire building, hard work, even gardening. But there's no solution there. It's not good. It's still not good. So God, verses 21 to 25, so God acts. Now in these verses we verge on deep mysteries. And indeed I want you to hold on to that word mystery. uh, Because it is of significance in understanding what is going on. The mysterious nature of it is indicated by us being told that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Obviously, God didn't need to send the man to sleep to create woman, and yet he does. There's something mysterious about to happen. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. That word rib, the traditional translation of the Hebrew word is rib, and and most uh, translations down through history and still today, it's, it's a tricky word to translate. Indeed, in the book of Ezekiel, later, the same Hebrew word is used to translate the side chambers of the temple. It has the sense of the side, the half, a part of the person extracted to shape this new person. The other half. And out of this 
mysterious technique. God shapes woman. And God, as the divine matchmaker, brings woman to man. And then in verse 23, we get the first love poem. Once again, it's almost impossible to translate. But the, the word this that you see at the beginning of, of, of the poem in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This. The man, as he's speaking, is, is stumbling for words. This, this, this. He's amazed at the fit and the beauty of woman. And then the author uh, has this conclusion. Therefore a man shall leave his father's mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. An important text for all pastoral conversations about marriage. The number one reason why marriages get into trouble and there are, can be many different reasons. But the number one reason is because of a lack of application of verse 24. To be married, there needs to be a leaving and a cleaving for a new family, a new one flesh. Obviously talking about the physical unity, but more than merely the sex act, it's talking about man, the image of God in man and woman. And then verse 25, the author says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Telling us, of course, that despite all the foolish conversations about sexual repression in church history that there have been, and despite the equally foolish conversations about sexual liberty that there has been in secular culture, the right story of sex is that it's not shameful, but that it's good within a covenant of marriage. I told you to hold on to that word mystery, because the Apostle Paul, when he quotes from these founding verses in Genesis chapter 2, says, I tell you a mystery but really, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. So our family, in the context of Genesis, God has this plan to use a family, Abraham, that will bless all nations despite our human rebellion and through his seed, which is Christ, to then bless all nations and the family unit in its original intention in Genesis chapter 2 is meant to be a mirror image of that message. Christ and the church 
your family, whether you're married or single, is not merely a place of nice intimacy and a good place to get a good lunch on a Sunday afternoon. Family, Christ-centered family, is intended to be a pulpit. Evangelism. Discipleship. A message of the biggest mystery that the world has ever heard. Which that God, which is that God loves us human rebels. And He has a plan to bless us and shape us into His image for the blessing of other families too. And say, so, okay, well, how does that land? Let me give you two ways. Two questions. How, what kind of story do you tell of your family if you're married? And what kind of story do you tell of family if you're single? Either way. First question, what kind of story do you tell a family if you're married? It's possible you know, particularly within Christian circles, to have an idea of family that superficially is Christian, but is actually idolatrous, selfish, loving me, and other people who are genetically connected to me? But family is for the evangelistic discipleship purpose of God reaching the world. You say, what does that mean practically? Think through how you could invite into your family life the college student, the poor, The lonely. Don't fill up your schedule so much only with other physical family events that there's no room for your family to be used for God's purpose, which is to reach the world around you and the neighborhoods around you. When you think of how to shape your family, don't only think, how can we be secure and safe? think, how can we be used in this place to redeem those around us, our neighbors, our friends? By the same token, it's also possible within this question of what kind of story we're telling about our family if we're married to have a too low view of family. Perhaps particularly some men struggle with this. Men, let me speak a word to you. To invest in your family is in all likelihood the most important thing that you will do in your life. And that need that you have for companionship, 
it's not good for a man to be alone, will not be resolved through achievement and financial success. It'll be resolved through changing diapers and getting home early from the office every now and then. Invest in your wives and your children. What about if you're single? What kind of story are we telling about family if we're single? Well, you see, even the best of human families are merely a reflection. Even the best of human marriages are merely a reflection of the real marriage, the real family. That's why there's no marriage in heaven, no human marriage. Why? Because human marriage is speaking of the real marriage, Christ and the church. That's real marriage. And if you're single, and if you're single throughout your life, you're not missing out on marriage. In fact, you might be being better prepared for the real thing. Isn't that what Jesus said when his human family came to him and heard that he was so busy that he hardly had enough time to eat and they thought that he was losing his mind and they wanted to come and get control of him and he looked around at his disciples who were listening to God's word around him. He said, who are my mother and my sister and my brothers? Those who hear God's word and do it, they are my mother and brothers. The family of God's people. That's the real family. And if you're single, whether for a season, whether by choice, or not something you have chosen, you have an opportunity to seize and see the real family in deeper and bigger ways than perhaps us married people will ever truly grasp until we're in heaven. So college church, when we think of family, don't just think of my little huddle, my little group, my genetic code. Think of our families as a resource, a mystery, a message that speaks of Christ and the church. Lift it to that level. Let me tell you about one person who did that. Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is normally thought of as a great theologian, but it's less well known exactly what a family man he was. He and Sarah had a famously good marriage. And they had, yes, get ready for it, 11 children. So, Wheaton... You've had four or five, you're only halfway there. Keep going. Eleven children. One of his children was Esther. And Esther was married to Aaron Burr, and Aaron Burr was president of Princeton, and she was the mother of Aaron Burr Jr., who was vice president of the United States. 
The Edwards progeny, uh, their descendants, include many pastors, 13 university presidents, 65 professors, and on and on and on it goes. For all his theological brilliance, could be that his greatest inheritance is through those children like Jonathan Edwards Jr., who was at the forefront of the abolition of slavery. Invest in family. Single or married. For the sake of the family of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we all are very aware that when it comes to family, we are failures. None of us are perfect sons or daughters, brothers or sisters, husbands or wives, mothers or fathers, grandparents. None of us have the perfect lifestyle or pattern of behavior. Uh, We're sorry, Lord, for our failures, and we pray you forgive us. But, Lord, we take comfort from the fact that the story of the Bible shows that you have a plan to bless human rebels like us through the the family of Abraham and his seed through Christ. And it, it thrills us, Lord, that in our family life, we have the opportunity to reflect that very message to the world around. And whether we're married or single, we pray, Lord, that our relationships here and in Wheaton and our neighborhoods, wherever we live, would be the savor of life, would speak of love and grace and, and of you, Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen.